praise God. One of the things I do want to say before I pray is um, one of the guys that was doing the break dancing was Daryl, right yeah. there, Daryl. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's lift our hearts to the Lord. Uh, Father, we just adore you this morning. We adore you. We appreciate you. We appreciate your love, your kindness, and your mercy towards us. We prepare our hearts now to receive your word. Build us up for your purpose and for your glory. Speak through Pastor Brent as he delivers your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a season where we can get completely bogged down in the mundane. We can get sort of locked in to the, the crazy schedule of going out, getting gifts, working, you know, trying to be with family, trying to be with friends, but never quite connecting with people. And um, I want to talk just a little bit about this season and the idea of us being surprised by joy during the Advent season, during the Christmas season. We have, in my house, we have all wooden floors, all right? And it's an old house. It's been around longer than anybody in this room has been alive. Um, and all of the boards, all of the wood floors creak. So you can't go anywhere in the house without everybody in the house knowing exactly where you're at. So if you want to creak over to the kitchen and get something, everybody knows you're going to the kitchen. Uh, if you're going to the bathroom or going to the dining room or wherever you're going, everybody knows where you're at. That can be a good thing because it's kind of nice just to know where people are at in relation to you while you're at the house. Um, but one morning I was in my office, which is downstairs, and I was working. It was very early. It was probably 5.30 in the morning, and I was working in my office, and it was dead silent. So I knew absolutely that, that you know, I was completely alone. And I'm working in my office. And I'm focused, and I'm concentrating, and it's dead silent, and everybody's upstairs asleep, and I'm working away, and then suddenly, right behind me, I hear a little voice go, surprise, as loud as he could. And I almost spit my coffee right out of my mouth. I turn around, and there's Jameson. And I'm thinking, how did he get down here? And I figured it out, that when you're only 31 pounds, the boards don't creak quite as much as they do when somebody like me walks down there. So he has gotten into this thing now where he likes to, he likes to surprise us. It's his new thing. He likes to pop out from behind the door, pop out from behind the, uh, under a blanket and surprise us. And today we're going to talk about a little bit about um, a character in the Christmas story who was surprised by the joy that God brought during the Advent season, during the time of preparation. Um, the title of this message comes from a book by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Surprised by Joy, which describes his conversion. And what's interesting about his conversion is that C.S. Lewis was a professor of medieval studies at Oxford. He was an atheist, and he just had no, no faith whatsoever, especially, you know, wasn't, certainly wasn't a Christian. He started hanging around these guys uh, they called themselves the Inklings. They were a bunch of really bright, scholarly-type folks that were literary and that kind of thing. And one of them was J.R. Tolkien. And uh, Tolkien was at Oxford, and he was at Exeter College, Oxford. And he and, and um, C.S. Lewis struck up a friendship. And Lewis describes in his book, Surprised by Joy, that at one point, the two of them got into a very long conversation about faith. And uh, 
And what was interesting is that C.S. Lewis was saying, look, how can you believe in the Christian faith? Clearly, this is some sort of mythology. We've seen it in other cultures. We've seen the idea that there's a deity that comes down and is born and then dies and is resurrected. This is a, this is a repetitive mythology that we see in other cultures. And Tolkien's take on it was interesting. He said, the, the myth that we see in other cultures is embedded in the hearts of the people because it reflects the reality that happened in Christ. And it was, a, it was sort of a startling re, retake for, for C.S. Lewis to think that maybe we, maybe we hear this story throughout life because there, at some point in history, it actually happened. And, and so anyway, C.S. Lewis sort of chewed on that all night. And the next morning, his brother, who was also there at Oxford, he and his brother decided to go to the zoo, which was about 40 miles away from Oxford in a different town, north, sort of north, uh, sort of... Um, what is that? That'd be west of, of Oxford. Um, and Lewis says that, uh, he describes it, that he got into the sidecar of his brother's motorcycle. So his brother had one of those motorcycles that had the cool old sidecars, you know, where you put the goggles on. He gets in the sidecar, and here's how Lewis describes his conversion and surprised by joy. He says, when we set out on our way to the zoo, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought nor in great emotion. Emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. It was more like, he says, it was more like a man after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. I thought that was a very interesting description of his conversion, that God sort of crept in on him, and surprised him with faith. Um, we're going to look at a passage uh, from the Gospel of Luke. Where this is exactly what happened to, the, to this character in this Christmas passage. This is Luke chapter 1 verse 5 through 14. In the time of Herod king of Judea there was a priest named Zechariah. Who belonged to the priestly division of, Ab- of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. Let me just stop for a second right there. This description of where they came from, uh, the Zechariah coming from the division of, of, of Abijah or Abiyah, his wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. This is the biblical way of saying these guys were a really big deal. Okay, the descendants of Aaron, that was a huge, valuable, and important priestly line uh, that, that um, Elizabeth came from. And this Abiah was this, this person was appointed by King David as, as a, the, one of the divisions of priests. So both of these folks came down, Zechariah and Elizabeth came down from a high, high level priestly caste, so to speak. Um, verse 7, but they were childless. Because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Let me stop for just one second and describe what's going on. So once a year... There were 18,000 priests that were in uh, Zechariah's position. And once in your lifetime, you had an opportunity to be chosen by lot 
to go into the temple. And, you know, we've talked about the temple when we were going through the book of Mark. But the temple was a massive 20-acre edifice. Okay, and it had this massive outer court. It was as big as, as big as Bush Stadium. And it had this massive outer court. And then it had a smaller inner court. And then there was an inner court on top of that. And a very inner court on top of that. And it got more and more selective as to who could come in to each inner court. And then ultimately there was the Holy of Holies, which was this very small inner court where there was the Ark of the Covenant. And once in your lifetime as a priest, you had, if you were chosen by lot, you had an opportunity to go in there and offer incense and say a prayer. Okay? And when you did, all of the multitudes of Israel would be outside of the temple praying together. So this was a huge national event that was going on. And here's what I love about this passage. While Zechariah is at the height of his career, while he has this opportunity to do something that is absolutely the most important thing he'll do in his role as a priest ever in his whole life, God comes to him in a very personal way. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been answered. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Imagine that. Imagine that Zechariah is about to partake in a huge He's he's at the height of his job. This is what he's doing. He's not thinking about anything personal. He's not thinking right now as he's in there about the fact that his wife is barren and they prayed for years to have a child. But God reveals himself in this moment, in this moment in a very surprising way and says, I'm going to bring joy and delight into your life. And of course, we know that the son that he had was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. Um... The question today is this, is God interested in your joy? Is he interested in your joy? And the answer, I think, from the scripture scripture is emphatically yes. God is uniquely and emphatically interested in your joy. It may be in a surprising way, and we'll talk about it, but, but he is emphatically interested in your joy. Uh, Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Right. Your strength that you have in your life and in your heart derives from the joy of God. Your joy is to you as Samson's hair was to him. Right. The joy that you have in Christ prepares you to overcome obstacles. It prepares you to overcome temptation, overcome fear, overcome anxiety, overcome difficult relationships. Having the joy of the Lord strengthens you. It also is a source of health, according to the scripture. A merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. Joy invigorates you. It brings health to your, to your heart and soul. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, People who are very happy, especially those who are very happy in the Lord, are not apt to give offense or to take offense. Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things that they are not easily distracted by the little troubles which naturally arise among such imperfect creatures as ours, as ours are. When we're full of the joy of the Lord, when we are intimately involved with God and are, and are, and are excited and happy in God, the little snags and 
you know, snares that come along in our lives, they don't mean much. You can shrug them off, right? You can just let them go because you're full of the abundant joy in Christ. Now, here's the paradox. That when we pursue joy or when we pursue happiness as its own end, we will end up making ourselves miserable. Some of the most miserable people I know are the ones who are on a quest for happiness. Because happiness or joy in and of itself, if that's your ultimate pursuit, that is a perfectly selfish pursuit. It is only directed at you. And when all of your attention is directed at yourself, you will make yourself (laughs) miserable. You'll make yourself sick with misery. It is a fact. Uh, When I lived in in California, uh, there were a lot of people who were in the pursuit of happiness. That was their trajectory. And I've never met such a miserable lot in my life, I promise you. I love how uh, um, the uh, Declaration of Independence says... Uh, that, you know, these are your inalienable, inalienable rights. Life, yeah. Liberty, yeah. And the pursuit of happiness. Now, you're, we're always going to guarantee you're going to get it, but you can pursue it. Good luck. Off you go. Run, go get them. Um, that, and, and I think one thing that makes us miserable when we pursue happiness is that we labor under the radical misapprehension that we can derive happiness through wealth or possessions, accomplishments, status. This is our predisposition. We tend to think that we can derive happiness by accruing these things into our life. Um, I talked to a guy this week uh, who is uh, a medical doctor, and he had a very candid conversation with me. And he said, look, I spent the better part of my early career hard-charging to build my practice to the detriment of my relationships with my wife and my family. And he said, and I built my practice. And he built a very, very successful practice. But he said, I'd I'd heard about burnout. People had told me about burnout. I never thought burnout would happen to me. He says, and and it happened. I ran into a wall where suddenly all this enterprise that I had built, that I had been nurturing and and, and, bringing along, suddenly it took control of me and was dragging me down the road. And I couldn't get out. Um, Thankfully, this man has reoriented his life and has sort of learned that the joy and the happiness that he was seeking is not going to be found in accruing more and more things, right? Or status or accomplishments. Um, And he has reoriented his life and is, is, um, you know, loving his family very well now. Um, But the the point of of the story is that joy is a byproduct of your relationship with God. Joy is not a, a, a pursuit in and of itself. It, it comes as a result. It's the byproduct of your relationship with God. What do you mean by that? Um, I'll tell you one, one funny L.A. story, and then I won't tell you any more until... I'll, 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 I'll parse these out over the next 50 years, because i got a bunch of them. Um, when I lived in Los Angeles, there was a point where, you know, I was completely blinded by the misapprehension that I could find my own personal happiness through accomplishments, through possessions, through status, wealth. I, I, I bought that, hook, line, and sinker. If I can just be famous, man, won't that be awesome, you know? Um, and I was living on a little street called Mariposa, 
which was just south of Wilshire in downtown L.A., kind of, kind of, kind of a, kind of the hood, okay? I'll just, you know, it was, it was rough. Um, I didn't have any furniture in my apartment, okay? I had a mattress on the floor, but I didn't have a television. I think I had a stereo, like a boom box with batteries or something, you could, or you could plug it in. Um, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a cell phone, and I didn't have a landline, right? I mean, I was broke. I was broke. Uh, what I did have was a beeper. <laughs> Remember the beepers? Um, so I had a beeper, and if you wanted to get a hold of me, then you could page me. You could page my beeper. And I did have one of my earthly possessions was a bucket of quarters. And so I would go get a quarter, run up to the McDonald's up the block, plug it into the payphone. <laughs> it's true. And I'd call you back. Hey, yeah, you just beat me, you know. Um, but I believed in my heart of hearts, I believed that if I could just get money or if I could just be famous or if I could just, then man, I was going to be happy. I, I really did believe it. Um, th- this is also at the time when I drove the red Subaru that I've told you about that was ultimately impounded. Um, many, many stories about the red Subaru, but, um, so broke and my, 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 Money philosophy at that time was if if cash comes out of the ATM, everything's cool. It doesn't matter if there are overdrafts. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we're as long as the cash comes out, we're good. Um, now my wife can tell you I've gone to probably the other extreme now where I'm like nose to the grindstone. But at that time, I just thought you know fine if there's cash then we're good. Um, then something happened. A buddy of mine who had already written a, a screenplay, and he had, uh, he had sold a screenplay, um, and he came to me, and, and he was doing well for himself, and he said, hey, look, I've drafted this screenplay. It's almost done. I'd love for you to, to help out. Just finish it up. I want to punch up some of the dialogue. I want to tweak a little bit of the narrative, and I think you do a good job. He said, what I'll do is I'll give you a shared story credit, and I'll give you 10% of whatever, whatever I make on this screenplay. And I thought, okay, that's, that's fair, because, I mean, it was basically done. It just needed a little bit of nudging here and there. And I thought, okay, you know, I, I can help with this. So we worked on it. We probably worked on it for about four weeks. Finished it up, tightened it up. It wasn't a big deal. We turned it into his agent. Uh, he, he had an agent at CAA, which is a big, you know, agency out there. Turned it in, and literally within a week, we sold the screenplay to Jersey Films and New Line Cinema. Now, they never made the movie, so you can't go find it, but they bought it, and they bought it for a lot of money. Um, I'll let you do the math, but my, my cut on it was $100,000. And for a guy who <laughs> didn't have a phone and, uh, and had his car, his you know, $800 or $600 car impounded by the police, the guy who who was like, look, I bought those floor mats. I'm keeping those floor, those $11. That was me. To walk into my bank and go, hey, I just need you to go ahead and deposit this for me, would you? Great, that'd be great. <laughs> so I walk into the bank with a $100,000 check. I will never forget this day. Walk in there, I kind of toss it to the teller, and I'm, I'm feeling pretty, pretty, you know, pretty tough. I'm like, go ahead and uh, cash that, uh, deposit that for me. And um, I was thinking maybe I'd pull out 10 grand just, you know, just for, I don't know, spending money, walk around money. Um, the, the teller looks at, looks at the check, looks at me, looks at my account history on the computer, looks back at me, looks back at the check, 
Sir, just hold on one second. I've got to talk to someone. She goes back. She comes out. Another guy comes out. He, he's looking at me. Now he's at the check, my account history. They're both looking like that, and it's just like this. And I, now I'm getting like, hey, what's the problem here? Look, you know, what, guy can't cash a $100,000 check around here? What's the, what's the deal? Um, he says, look, sir, we're going we're gonna to deposit the check, but we're going to go ahead and put a 14-day hold on that check. And I'm like, hey, look, the, the check was cut from a place, you know, three blocks up the street. Why don't you call him? He goes, sir, we're just going to put a little hold on that for you, okay? And I'm like, okay, fine. Marched out of there. But the, so, so what happened was there were a lot of changes that happened in my life at that time. I, I was able to buy, you know, a 1986 Ford Ranger instead of a 1979 you know, Subaru. But, and I also got a different apartment. And there are a few things that happened that were positive, right? And it was good to have gotten that money. But let me tell you what it didn't do. It didn't satisfy any of the deep longing hopes and aspirations that I had been carrying around for the previous two years. Not one of them. Within a month or two months of, ca- of depositing that check, my soul, my spirit, my heart was just as miserable as it was when I was checking the beeper and running up to McDonald's. Nothing changed on the inside. And that's because joy doesn't come from material gain. It just doesn't come. It comes as a byproduct of our relationship with God and our relationships with others. Let me read you just a couple quick verses. Um, Psalm 16, 8, 9 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, as a consequence of the above, right? My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Not because I got something, not because something good happened to me, but because the Lord is before me, because I am in tune with God, because I am at one with God, right? Because I have a relationship with God. Therefore, the scripture says, as a consequence thereof, my heart is glad and my, bo- and my whole being rejoices. Um, there's a passage, Psalm 4, 6, 7. Lift, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Do you know what David is saying there? He's saying, I have more joy when you smile upon me than when all of the wealth in the world comes in and the wine is flowing. When the party is rolling and the money is coming in, there's that, that you know, I have more joy than all of that as a result of, my, of you smiling on, upon me. When we enter into and have a relationship with God, when we build a relationship with God, and we're going to talk about how to do that in a minute, but when we do that, suddenly our heart cracks open and we can be flooded with a joy unlike anything we've ever experienced before. The song says, Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Um, Jameson, my son, he, like any kid, he likes toys. He likes possessions. They make him happy for a little while. Uh, and then they just accumulate. And then late at night, I pack them in a, in a bag and take them to the Goodwill. And nobody knows because there are so many in that room. But, um, but I'll tell you what will make him happier than any toy in the world. What makes him happier than any toy in the world is when I sit down and I play rock, paper, scissors with him. He loves it. 
I mean, I could give him $1,000, and it wouldn't make him as happy as me going like this. And he's so predictable. I know exactly what he's going to do. The rock, then he's going to do the scissors, then he's going to do the paper. So I can choose if I'm going to win or I'm going to lose, you know. And I try to keep him, you know, guessing. Um, but that brings him incredible joy because it's relational. It's, it's some, some, something about him is reaching out to be in relationship with his dad. Um, I spoke to another, I spoke to a woman this week who was saying to me that she was anxious and unsettled because she felt like she had not accomplished all the things in her life that she felt like she should have accomplished. And I said to her, I go, listen, and I'll give you another example from my children, but I said, listen, I have a two-year-old, Lincoln. He's not accomplished anything except that he is now out of diapers. So, hallelujah. Um, but what he's, well, all he does is, well, he eats and drinks and then does the inverse of those two things and then makes a lot of noise, and that's about it. But I wouldn't exchange a billion dollars for that kid because it has nothing to do with his accomplishments. It has to do with our relationship, you see. I'm his dad, so he implicitly has an incredible amount of worth to me and value to me. And when we look at our own life and think of our own value and our own worth and we do it in terms of our own accomplishments, we're going to miss it. Because what God is saying is, I want a relationship with you, and I value you, and I love you, and you're my child, and I don't care if you're barely out of diapers. I love you. And my, my, my joy is in having a relationship with you. And we will find, too, that our joy is in having a deep and abiding relationship with him. That's what Zechariah experienced in the holiest of holies, is that suddenly he's in a moment of deep relationship with God, and God is promising him yet another relationship a child that would be born to him. I can tell you this, that the happiest days of my life are very easy to number. Number one happiest day was the day that I became a Christian. The day that I opened my heart and let God into my life. Number one happiest day. Number two happiest day, the day I married Rebecca. Absolutely number two happiest day in my life, and I always will be. Number three happiest day, there's two days tied for happiest day three, Jameson and Lincoln, right? All of those have to do with not ha- they don't have to do with any accomplishment. They don't have to do with any money. They don't have to do with any status. They have to do with relationships and, and developing a deep and powerful relationship with someone else. Um, so that's point number one. Point number two, and you're going to be happy to know there's only two points in this sermon, not three. Amen. Um, let me just, that's, that's the last scripture I wanted to give you for the first point. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's in your presence that the joy comes. The scripture is over and over and over again. It just tells us that your joy derives from being in the presence of God and having that relationship. Joy is not something you get. Joy is something that you do. Did you know that it is, we are charged as Christians to rejoice. The scripture never says pursue joy, seek joy. doesn't say that. Go find happiness doesn't say that. There's nowhere in the scripture that says, go and find out how to be happy. What the scripture does say is, rejoice. Be joyful. Have joy. Now, if you're, you know, if you're taking that in for the first time, it might sound like, you know, what, what, your, what your mom or dad might say when you're doing the 
the family picture for the holidays. You know, it's like, look happy, kid. We're getting our picture taken, you know, right? That's not what the scripture is saying, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> when um, we had this, we had a birthday party for Jameson not too long ago. And the idea was, you know, this is going to be fun for him. But the stress and the strain of getting ready for the birthday party, by the time we actually got to the birthday party, we're just like, okay, let's have some fun now, you know? But, uh, that's not what, that's not what the scripture is saying. The scripture truly is saying that, that God wants you to be filled with joy. And he actually directs us as Christians to be filled with joy. Look at these scriptures real quick. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, wait a minute. Let me say it again. Rejoice, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I just want to say something. Rejoice. That's a command from Paul to the Philippians. Rejoice. 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always. Does that mean that we have to fake it? Does that mean we have to pretend to be happy? No. And we're going to talk about in just a second uh, that, let me back it up. And we're going to talk about in just a second how we rejoice but we don't rejoice because we're free from all pain, struggle, and difficulty in life. That's not the Christian message. And I think that we, as Christians, sometimes do a disservice to people when we tell them that. If our message as Christians is, become a Christian and everything will be hunky-dory, guess what? The first time that things are not hunky-dory, the person is going to say, that guy lied to me. I don't believe him. I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe Christianity. I'm out of here, right? So the message of the faith is not lollipops, unicorns, rainbows. It, that's not the message of the faith. The message of the faith is not Pollyanna, everything's happy, happy-go-lucky, right? The message of the faith is that despite our struggles, despite our difficulty, despite our trials, and in light of them, we still rejoice. And the Christmas story, and I'll tell you why in just a minute, but the Christmas story is the reason why we can rejoice in our struggles. Um, Steve Brown wrote a book called Approaching God, and he says, If there is no laughter, Jesus has gone somewhere else. If there is no joy and freedom, it is not a church. It is simply a crowd of melancholy people basking in religious neurosis. <laughs> if there is no celebration, there is no real worship. Our worship is, is a celebration. When we say, praise God, thank God, hallelujah, that's a celebration. We're saying, let's party. <laughs> We're saying, thank you, God. You've poured out your love upon us. You've made yourself available to us. You've come to earth to be with us, to be in relationship to us, and we're excited about that. That's what worship is. Um, how do we do it? How do we rejoice? We rejoice by developing deep, meaningful relationships with God and others. This is what we're directed to do in the Scripture. John 15, I love this passage. John 15, 9 through 11 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The scripture is about abiding in God's love 
And as a result, as a byproduct of that, experiencing joy. Again, this is not joy that we get, this, you know, because we don't struggle. Because Paul, in prison, shackled, hand and foot, stripped, beaten, was doing what? Rejoicing. In the book of Acts, he was rejoicing in his tribulation. He was rejoicing in his struggle. And he was thereby freed. And number two is align your mind with that which is good. Philippians, after it says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And you're sitting there going, how am I supposed to do that? Right? Philippians says. uh, Oh, I'll just read it to you. I don't think I have the slide. It says, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Right? So when we are faced with struggles in life and challenges and difficulties, it's not that we avoid them. It's not that we ignore them. It's not that we shove them under a rug. And it's not that we pretend they're not there. The scripture does not call us to denial. The scripture calls us to something so much greater than that. The scripture calls us to rejoice in our struggles and to direct our mind on those things which are good. Right? It's, you know, we have to sometimes capture our own thoughts, capture our own reflections. Sometimes our mind will just sort of go down a path that's negative and go down a, you know, a a very um, destructive sort of mindset. And you can wallow in it. And the scripture's saying, hey, think on the good things. That which is good, that which is excellent, that which is of good report. Dwell on that. Focus on that. And this is how we rejoice. Now, this is the joy of Christmas. The joy of Christmas is this. Not that our circumstances have changed, right? When Jesus came into the earth, it didn't radically change the circumstances of the first century Jews that were waiting for a Messiah. It didn't radically change their circumstances. They thought that their Messiah would come and change their circumstances, overthrow the Roman government, come in on a white stallion, slay the dragon, and set everyone free, build a kingdom. He would be the king. They would be the, the, you know, the rulers, and they would lord it over the rest of the earth. And Jesus and God said, surprise, because here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you a savior that's going to be born in a manger of lowly birth, Not so that your circumstances will change, but that God's circumstances will change so that you can be in relationship with him. God came to the earth. The surprise of Christmas is that God made himself like you and me so that we could be in a relationship with him. And that is what evokes real joy. Real joy comes out of our ability to relate to God. The surprise of Christmas is that the chasm between the metaphysical and the physical was broken. Between the spiritual and the physical, that chasm was broken. Because when God came and made himself flesh and dwelt among us, all the the distinction between the heavens and nature collapsed. Right? If you say... How can, I have, how can I rejoice because I was born into a poor family? Jesus was born into a, a family that was of extreme poverty. You know, his father, day laborer, grew up poor, challenged, difficulties. 
and, and, you know, and his whole life lived that way. He lived a nomadic existence until he died. But I still experience fear and anxiety. You say Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane was racked with fear and anxiety. He relates to you. I still have relational stress with my family, you say. Jesus' family thought he was crazy. They thought he was nuts. Remember we read in Mark a few months ago where they said, Hey, Jesus, let's come on, let's go ahead and take you home because you're acting kind of crazy right now, right? They thought he was insane. So if you have some relational stress, you're not alone. But my colleagues and my friends have betrayed me or hurt me in some way, right? Jesus' best friends betrayed him, walked away from him, left him, abandoned him, denied him, swore against him. But I still experience pain and suffering. That's the message of Christ. He came to have experienced pain and suffering so that he can relate to you. But I still experience temptation. He was tempted in every way as we are. So what the surprise of Christmas is, is that God came and surprised the world by becoming one of us. That is the surprise of Christmas. And that is why when we say that heaven and nature have come together in this moment, in this birth of this child, that's why we sing the song, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let heaven and nature sing. Let heaven and nature sing. Let heaven and nature sing. Because the surprise and the joy of Christmas is that God has come and become one of us so that we can become like him and follow him and follow his lead and follow his example and have a relationship with a God that was at one point felt distant and remote from the human race. That's the joy of Christmas. And so the message that we walk away with today, rejoice. Rejoice. This is our call. This is our duty. This is our, this is our joy. That, 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 that this is what we're called to do and be. I, I did spend a, a short amount of time around a group of people that were Christians and I think sincere believers. But they honestly and earnestly believed that the more you suffered the more you demonstrated your love for God. The more morose and sad and sour you were, the more you were, the, more, the holier you were. And the scriptures don't, <laughs> they don't, they don't back up that proposition. We're called to rejoice. We're called to have joy. Amen? Can we walk in joy today? Can we walk in joy this week? As we go about our duties, when folks are, oh man, I had some folks driving this week. And things that they said and things that they did with their hand towards me was not nice. I just want to say rejoice. I want to say you're number one too. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's go about this season. Let's go about this Advent season as we lead up to Christmas and just orient our hearts to, to, to joy. Can we do that? Not towards frustration and struggle and anger. and let's just, let's just take a moment, adore Christ, and enjoy Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you.